You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the group think, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to the Conservative Conscience here at Conservative Review's Northern Command. It is Wednesday, the first day of spring, March 20th. It doesn't really feel like spring here, but spring's a time to grow. For things to grow, can we grow ideas? Well, the first idea we have is to actually beget a country. You know, isn't that a novel idea? A country. It was sore, it was sure nice to have the country when we did have it. It was nice to have a sovereign nation with its own unique culture and system of government when we did have it. But I guess we're kind of at the hospice stage. Some of you might have seen last night, Wall Street Journal reported that the administration is now not even apprehending or not even detaining those family units coming over the Rio Grande River. And in fact, they're letting them go right away because they just don't have the room for it. Well, so what are we going to do about it? It intensifies every day. We're told by the secretary that we are on pace for 100,000 apprehensions in March. And apprehensions doesn't mean what it used to mean, where you got them out of here. It means they are here indefinitely. Anyone could come, anyone is released, and anyone is never deported. That's a pace of 1.2 million annualized. That is something we have never, ever had in this form where they are unique individuals, not doubles and triples, and where they were never returned. I can't overstate the severity of the situation and how it's almost eerie with me walking through this uh, situation, almost like someone walking through Hiroshima after there's a nuclear blast, like, hey, is anyone home? All my colleagues are focused on whatever soap opera. And as I warn to you in my book, as I've been warning in hundreds, if not thousands of columns, as I've warned on hundreds of broadcasts, nothing matters until sovereignty and the courts are dealt with. Just yesterday, a court, a district judge, after originally saying Trump can no longer be commander in chief, and they are going to determine the eligibility criterion for who comes into the military, and that Trump must allow trannies into the military and pay for castration operations. So the administration just, of course, followed it. And finally, they actually got relief from the Supreme Court. Guess what? Yesterday, a district judge from the D.C. District Court announced that, no, I'm not taking off the injunction. Screw that Supreme Court. Isn't it funny how for years we were told that co-equal stronger branches of government, Congress and the executive branch, they must listen to a Supreme Court when they make a political rule outside of a case or controversy, no matter how illegal it is, no matter how unconstitutional it is, no matter how much they violate rules of standing, History, tradition, doesn't matter. In comes the lower courts and say, hold my beer. An inferior court can now violate a Supreme Court, but the other two branches will now listen to the lower court violating the Supreme Court, violating our Constitution. So I guess I guess we don't have a country anymore. I, I, I guess there's nothing we can do. I, if that is our position, then there's nothing we can do. And by the way, before I get to my guest here, uh, just coming across the wires, Judge Halt's drilling drilling plan. Federal judge has temporarily blocked oil and gas drilling on 300,000 acres of land in Wyoming, ruling that the Interior Department did not sufficiently consider climate change in its assessment of whether a lease um, or whether to lease federal land for individual projects. You know, a lot of my colleagues are worried about Democrats getting more power and implementing the new Green Deal. I got news for you. The courts are already and will implement it judicially without anyone even knowing, without any electoral reprisal, without any ability to change anything through the courts, just like they've done with national sovereignty. 
I'm going to bring in our guest here to talk more about the cartels, about maybe what we can do. But clearly what we're not doing is stopping an invasion. I, I've fought this issue, every single aspect of immigration. You guys well know this for, for 12 years, um, 13 years, about really, really since the 2006 amnesty fight. There probably is nobody on the web who has spilt more ink on the immigration issue and all, you know, everything, visas, border, drugs, culture, fiscal cost, history, certainly the legalities of courts. And I'll, I'll tell you that for 13 years, we've successfully blocked legislative amnesty. What was it we were scared about? That the left would get enough power to grant amnesty to those who have been here 10, 15 years illegally. The thought popped into my mind last night, and maybe it's obvious to you guys, but it's worth reiterating. What we have right now under the Trump administration is more severe than my worst nightmare for 13 years because we're not talking about people here 10, 15 years. We're talking about every single person who coming now, tomorrow, next week, and pretty much indefinitely. The The floor has fallen out from under us. There is no backstop. They will come. They will be let in. They will never be deported. We have no country. Rather than me lament for another 50 minutes, I figured I'd bring a a guest on today. And if there's nothing we can do to stop illegal immigration because the courts have made immigration a uh, constitutional right and the administration has made it clear that any district judge is God, well, is there at least something we can do on the other half of the problem? The cartels, the criminality, um, the danger that arises from them, independent of illegal immigration. Obviously, it's it's inextricably linked, and we're going to talk about that. But maybe there's a way we could combat the cartels, and that will have some effect, even without directly touching immigration. That's something I want to explore today. Jason Jones, as you all know, has become our go-to guy. He is the cartel man. He knows everything about the cartels. He's a retired captain from Texas Department of Public Safety, spent many years directing a division of the Texas Rangers and counter-border, counter-intel, counter-terrorism operations. He is my uh, you know, cabinet official here at the Conservative Conscience. I speak to him almost every day to get advice, and he is now back for the third time. Hey, Jason, that's a pretty big honor to be back on this show for the third time. Dan, it absolutely is. And thanks for having me. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to be with you and talk to your guests. And, and I really need a co-host today because I'm just going to go insane um, because nobody seems to care about what's important anymore. I, I just first want maybe maybe I'm just looking for validation here. I don't know. Um, before we get into just the mechanics of the cartels, um, designating them as terror groups, what that will do, what the latest trends are. I really want to hear from you and what you're hearing from your friends that are still in the, you know, in the department in, in Texas. To me, one of the biggest things I've learned from you is the need to adapt to 21st century dynamics, that not everything in law enforcement in terms of national security concerns are the same as they were. And we're not going to have an invasion like we had you know, back when we had obviously the Indian tribes or the way we traditionally view an invasion or the bombing of Pearl Harbor with a, with a military, with an air force, no one's going to challenge, could challenge us technologically in that way. But you're, what you're going to have and what you're seeing now, is it not true that we now have NGOs plus cartels, smugglers, all the way really from South America through Central America through Mexico, weaponizing migration, weaponizing an endless number of impoverished individuals um, to come here. Is that not a 21st century invasion? Yeah, it really is, Dan. And I'll I'll tell you that, you know, this hyper-crime environment that we're now seeing that's taken over in Mexico, taken over in Central America and South America is not going to get better. And a lot of the solutions that we need to be seeking out you know, they don't require Congress that what they require are changes in policies and processes within law enforcement, within the intelligence community, and within the Department of Defense, and providing the authorities for those organizations to be able to come to the table. You know, we have an entirely new framework of 
crime that we've got to address. And, you know, it's natural, it's evolution, it's changing, and we have to address it. Now, I get it. There are law enforcement agencies and leadership that do not want to evolve to the 21st century. They don't want to evolve to the threats that we're facing, but it doesn't matter what they want. The world is changing. And our law enforcement and our government agencies must change with it, and they must change now. And uh, that's why it's so important to talk about these things and get it out there, because we can do this, but we've got to start now, because lives are at stake. And I will tell you that, you know, if you look at the amount of murders occurring in Mexico, in 2017, we were looking at 29,000 people killed. Since 2006, over 200,000. And just last year in 2018, over 34,000 people killed. Now, you know, you can throw out numbers, but when you really start to think about the effects on a nation and on, you know, um, families and how that affects them, those are huge impacts. And we must do everything we can do to protect the American people. You know, j- just uh, to put a point on that. Um, for our listeners, I'm going to link this in show notes. I have an article out today. Three of the MS-13 um, members who stabbed and burned that guy in Maryland um, last week were resettled here as refugees called UACs, unaccompanied, unaccompanied alien children. And you know, one of the things I was talking about is how this is such a big scam that we are bringing in the violence to our country. So ironically, and maybe it's not ironically, maybe there's actually a reason to it. The violence is going down in Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras while going up in America. But one of the interesting factoids, and I want to get your comment on this, uh, Jason, from your experience, to me, I find this astounding. So, you know, when the migration began around 2014 in Guatemala, the... um homicide rate was about 45.50 per 100,000 people. Now it's been cut in half to 22.4. And guess what? For the first time ever, Mexico surpassed Guatemala. So while Guatemala is now going down, the micro, the the homicide rate in Mexico is at 25 per 100,000. And migration is down from from Mexico while skyrocketing from Guatemala. They're going through Mexico. So, so isn't this tragic that we're told, oh, they're fleeing violence, but in fact, it's inducing violence in Mexico and in America? Absolutely it is. And, you know, a lot of the crimes that are uh, occurring in the United States that people uh, usually in the northern uh, states of the country say that, well, you know, we hear about this, but we don't see it. And the reason is because the crimes that are occurring here domestically are not captured by the Uniform Crime Report. And, you know, you've heard me talk about this in the past, such as public corruption, kidnapping, extortions, drug trafficking, human trafficking, money laundering weapon seizures, none of that is captured, yet is occurring throughout our country. Now take that, and that affects all your listeners, right, every day. Now take that to Mexico. You know, Tijuana was just named one of the most violent cities in the world. Uh, The Mexican cartels are responsible for the violence that you're talking about in Mexico. And not only there, you know, you look at Sinaloa's in 54 countries around the world. You've got Cartel Jalisco, New Generation, that is now operating in over 43, um, we've got real challenges in recognizing that they are no longer just drug trafficking organizations, that these are global violent networks who are operating just as terrorist organizations do, and that they have gone through a massive quantum leap in change in tradecraft, and they leverage technology and military-grade weapons. And I'll just give your your listeners one example. they possess the, the capability to be operating on a two-way handheld encrypted radio. They can be in Maui on a beach and be able to conduct operations just about anywhere in the world and not have to be there. And I can tell you uh, firsthand from debriefing some of the leadership of these plaza bosses, specifically the Zetas, uh, where they were operating in the United States on radios leading in Mexico. Now, think of that on our soil, 
conducting operations, living the good life while their people in Mexico are taking orders from them. So we have to evolve. And that's why you hear me say, you know, there's a lot of bad out there, but what do we need to be doing that's right? What do we need to be doing that's going to get us to where we can start creating the processes and the policies to change the environment that we're in? Because it's not getting better. And what we don't have in our government is the legal framework for dealing with this new hypercrime environment that we're in. And what we need to first start with is by providing the authorities to what we call the Homeland Security Enterprise. And that's why this, this designation of designating the cartels as foreign terrorist organizations, Dan, is so important because it's just the start of what needs to happen. But what it does do is it provides the authorities to the Department of Defense and to the intelligence community, along with the Department of Justice and Treasury, so that we can at least allow all entities of government agencies to be able to focus on this problem. So that's what I wanted to elaborate on today, the art of the possible. What can we do? Because you referenced that there are things that don't need Congress, and and that's really what I want to I want to go down that route because, again, my listeners are very well aware of my rant on that. I started out the show today. Other days, we're never going to get 60 votes in the Senate, ever. Nothing is going to pass. We're never going to get 91 district courts. The courts are God. So clearly, um, nothing is stopping directly on immigration law. But the question is, you know, as much as I believe if we shut that down and the president actually did what I would suggest, it would shut down most of the problem. But, you know... We have the cartels as a distinct problem even without that. For example, I saw a video from the – I believe it was the San Diego CBP. They put out a video showing uh, these guys dropping kids as young as eight over a border wall. And even if we didn't have mass migration, but they would do this stuff as tactics to distract our agents no matter what. And that's that's a problem if we have have organized groups on our border doing that. So, what is it we can do? I know you are extremely ecstatic, and you said a lot of people that worked in counter cartel activities were very happy when Chip Roy and um, Congressman Green from Tennessee introduced the bill to designate the cartels as terrorists but then also called on the State Department to do it unilaterally, which is certainly an authority they have. Could you explain just in layman's terms, okay, okay, what does that mean? Why should our people care? Why will that make us safer? Yeah, absolutely. And first off, I want to say uh, you deserve a lot of credit for that, Dan, because uh, you were able to get me in touch with Chip Roy. I was able to sit down with him. Uh, Congressman Roy is a phenomenal individual and very open-minded guy. Uh, I had the opportunity to sit down and talk with him just after he had returned from the Rio Grande Valley down here in South Texas, where he himself was able to witness the apprehension in one evening of 300 men, women, and children uh, by the great work of U.S. Customs and Border Protection. I have to tell you, when I, when I sat down and talked with him, I, I could see visually he was impacted by what he was seeing. And, and on the humanitarian side of this, well, you know, when you see that many people crossing the border there, they have been through put through so much. I mean, they're exhausted from the trip. Um, They've been exploited by the cartels. You know, much of that I can't even talk about because of the sexual things that they've done to uh, women and children. It's just brutal, uh, along with how many of those uh, lost family members during the journey. But I could see it visually impacted the congressman. And I I, I briefed him on, you know, what was really occurring and what's happening uh, behind the law enforcement curtain that's really not getting out uh, to even our leadership. And he wanted to know, what can we do? And I told him we need to first start by designating these cartels as terrorist organizations and explained why. And some of the reasons that are provides for DOD and, and the intelligence community to come to the table. But what it also does is it provides the ability to seize assets all over the world where they may operate. The second thing it does is it limits their travel, both domestically in the United States and around the world. Uh, we'll be able to flag them and be able to really prevent a lot of their movements. That's huge. The second or the third thing that uh, it's really going to be able to do for us is those who are here on some kind of legal status for a short period of time, it's going to allow us in some cases to be able to go in and just remove them from the country. Uh, I know that may surprise your listeners that we have 
known cartel operatives operating in the United States, and we can't just go up and remove them, but we can't. So this is really going to change things. And when it comes to conducting investigations, it's going to help us to be able to go after them for providing material support. Mm. So not only authorities, but a lot of laws and new capabilities come to the table. And so that's why it's extremely important. And I want to thank you um, because without you being able to make the connections and you hear me talk about collaboration and everyone working together and how important it is, will you help make it happen? Because I've been speaking on this issue since I retired for two and a half years. And one day over a uh, breakfast meeting, we accomplished more to get this done than ever before. So thank you for that, Dan. No, and I do know that at some point it it did get to the White House. Um, The president did see the proposal. Um, I believe he saw my original article from what I, I hear. And when Breitbart interviewed him, he did say he's seriously considering it. So, you know, I feel like this is at least something maybe, maybe we can do. I, I want to, I want you to give a little, a little bit more on the specifics here of the utility in going after the dudes here. From what I've heard, a big part of the problem is that because we don't hold the line at the border, and we've talked about that. We did a whole show on it, did a couple articles, and I know you've seen them. So obviously, they're able to come in. You have the bailouts where they uh, get get picked up to circumvent checkpoints, um, the drug loads and everything. But that's all predicated on the fact that they have receivers. They have act, um, or- organizers at the other side. So you know they're coming in through our border, but then there's people in Houston, San Antonio, Phoenix, all the major urban areas, not at the border, but in the border states where they'll come down and pick them up. And that's really how they screw us. It's, it's, it's you know, the border, but then the, from the accumulation of this garbage that we've allowed in for so many years, they've set up these networks. DA tells me this all the time, um, that, that that's a big part of it. So you're saying that once you designate them as terrorist gr- groups, so if DA is like, hey, there's a dude here that we know is causing a lot of trouble, it's going to take forever to land a prosecution, and do we even want to do that anyway at this point? He's a member of Sinaloa. Um, you know, now, now, now I could just call ICE and we can get rid of him. Absolutely. And in many cases, we could have stopped him before he ever even was able to get here. So when he began to cross... Uh, through a port of entry, and what may really surprise some of your listeners is that these are the individuals that have the ability. Remember, they've got money. They have the ability to get a visa. They have the ability to get some kind of uh, work visa or student visa to allow them in the United States because they have money. So they're able to do this. So when they come through a port of entry, they can immediately be flagged and stopped before they're ever allowed into the United States, which is phenomenal. And that will then start pushing them to try to cross illegally between the ports of entry. And, you know, we can go on for what they're going to do from there, but it will send a distinct message that you're not allowed in the United States anymore if you're going to work for these criminal organizations and, you know, now terrorist organizations if we get the designation. And But let me talk about, you know, our system is very slow for a reason. You know, we conduct investigations. We want to make sure it's done right. That's how you know, uh, we conduct ourselves in America. You know, we have a great legal system that moves slow on purpose to ensure things are done correctly. But when you're working in a hypercrime uh, transnational environment that we see ourselves in today, we've got to think more of a preventative model more than just an investigative model. And you hear me talk about that, Dan, all the time. But I, I will tell you that it is extremely important because when, you, when we talk about conducting you know, a federal investigation or a uh, Title III wiretap investigation, these are extremely, extremely expensive types of investigations. They cost hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. They last a year to two years in length. And sure, at the end of it, we'll arrest and, you know, 30 to 40 plus people. We will seize thousands of pounds of narcotics, and that's all great. But here's where the problem is in a transnational world and where we find ourselves today. Within 12 to 24 hours, those individuals that were arrested domestically will be completely replaced. New leadership will be brought in from Mexico, and those individuals that we spent two years and in some cases, millions of dollars on investigating, they're not even out of jail yet, and the organization is back up and running. And we haven't made a dent in it. 
And it's why you hear me talk about why we have to change and we have to evolve to the threats that we're facing. And I I just want to say, I mean, I get it, right? Many of your listeners and many executive leaders in government are hearing things today they may have never seen before, never heard about, you know, why we have to look at things differently. But unfortunately, if you work on the southwest border, you see it every day, all day. The infiltration of these networks and the crime wave that we're we're feeling, our current system just cannot handle it. And we've got to evolve to a new framework that can deal with this lexicon that we're dealing with because it's not going away. It's only getting worse. Now, very, very well said. I mean, that's that that's that's really important because the way I look at this now is that if if our government doesn't have the will to treat illegal immigration to this extent like an invasion because, oh, no, no, these are poor people. We we care. And of course, our government is of buying for illegal immigrants, not for Americans. And, and that's that's very clear. But at the very least, when it comes to the cartels, you know, it, it, it doesn't require any big lift. It's something the State Department could designate any group as a terrorist group. Do you think that this will orient our law enforcement more towards the mindset that this is an invasion? Call them terrorists, so treat it as such? Uh, I'm hopeful, but I'm also very realistic. It What it's really going to do is first and foremost provide the authorities. Um, while the listeners out there may say, well, okay, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal, it really is. You know, to bring in all of the government agencies and the capabilities that we need. First, they have to have the authorities. Uh, Once the designation is there, I think it's going to start the process, but I have to be very honest with you. It's going to be a long and painful process because then after this, we've got to get all these agencies collaborating and creating a new framework, building new policies and new processes in how to work outside the United States and sharing of intelligence real time and in collaboration and you hear me speak all the time about collaboration because this problem set us so big. And, you know, here's where I, where I come from with that. If I had not worked the border issue and seen how big this problem is, you know, we didn't, we didn't collaborate in Texas because it's something that we just thought we needed to do or, or wanted to do. It was, we were required. This problem set is so big. You know, there are hundreds of thousands of cartel members in Mexico. The level of tradecraft that they employ against us all on the southwest border required us at local, state, federal levels to work together. I mean, if you look down there now, we've literally got Texas Highway Patrolmen riding with U.S. Customs and Border Protection, and we've got those agents riding in our helicopters. Um, It is a truly collaborative environment where everyone is doing everything they can to hold the line. I mean, Dan, you know, you, you want to hear something funny? I, I'll tell you, tell a Texas highway patrolman, you're not going to patrol anywhere for the next 12 hours. Uh, you're going to sit in that car at one location and hold the line. When we first did that, uh, going back to 2014, I, I remember the looks on some of the leadership from the highway patrol thinking, <laughs> what are we doing here? You know, I mean, but that's where we went and we would literally hold the line and it worked. And, 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 and Jason, I, the, the sick, I'm just like jumping out when I hear you tell me this because the sick irony of this is because we don't hold the line, because we don't believe in our country to have a sovereign sovereign nation, and we allow them to have operational control on both sides of the border well into our territory, you have these high-speed chases, ironically. Oh, not just high-speed chases, Dan. I mean, we have hundreds and hundreds in a month. I mean, it's out of control. And what's worse is when you know uh, folks up north say, well, we don't see it. They're not lying because, again, the Uniform Crime Report doesn't capture it. And not only are they high-speed pursuits, you've got men, women, and children in uh, stolen pickups that are picked up at the border. Uh, law enforcement interdicts them and starts trying to get them to pull over. The coyote uh, then runs, the driver then then runs. A pursuit is, is then created. And uh, we have, you know, these high-speed pursuits of over 100 miles an hour. We have, they always end in what we call a bailout or a wreck, um, in which they wreck out and, you know, everyone runs in every direction. But in many times, you know, we've got mass carnage and a lot of killings. You know, I can't tell you how many people have been killed being smuggled to these stash houses from these bailout events. So it's a real problem. And that goes over 
into what you hear me talk about all the time, that we're having crime across the southwest border that's not being reported um, in the Uniform Crime Report. You can't see it, but it's actually happening. I mean, look at the splashdowns that we deal with. Look at the caltrops that they throw against us. Those are spikes. Where in these pursuits, these cartel members will literally throw at law enforcement hundreds of spikes at one time to deflate our tires. You know, none of that ever gets out to the American mm-hmm. people about what's happening um, down along the border. These are very coordinated operations that the cartels conduct against us. All right. So now I got to get your take on just the latest trends, the latest news. Um, you had the Washington Post, uh, Nick Myroff, who actually has been doing pretty good reporting for the Washington Post, detailed reporting he's gone down to Mexico. And you know it's nothing we don't see, but I think he put it very well that there's a conveyor belt. Um, this has become so, so, so mechanized almost where they actually have machinery to bring people in, not literally machines, but, you know, uh, figuratively, to bring them in from Guatemala. And now, where whereas it used to be, you kind of go in ones and twos and fives, and it's very dangerous and everything, they're actually creating a conveyor belt system for caravans. So what it does is it, it, it everyone wins. It entices the more Central Americans than ever to come, uh, even the ones that always wanted to come but were too scared of the journey itself. Well, now you have the protection of more people being together um, because the smugglers don't have to do anything because we self-immolate as a nation and just bring them in. You don't have to be smuggled in once you get to the border. So it's cheaper. And then correct me if I'm wrong. I thought that originally when these caravans started, the cartels were pissed because it brought too much attention to what you know they always did privately, and they were scared we would shut it down. But then once they realized that we're such cowards as a nation that even a blatant invasion we wouldn't shut down, now they're all in on it. And they're like, well, hey, more people, more you know, we're fine with it. And despite the violence in intra-cartel uh, violence, you now have record numbers both in the RGV. Um, the, the Rio Grande Valley and El Paso, 432 in five minutes surrendered in El Paso, right behind the border wall. Um, you know, RGV is breaking daily records. What are you hearing from a Texas perspective, Texas lawman speaking to this? Because I know you have a lot of experience, but I have never heard about something on this you know, just this magnitude. Yeah. And, you know, when it first hit, when this, when these mass uh, caravans started first hitting the cartels, they weren't too happy about it. But since then they've evolved and they've learned how to make money. Remember people are just a commodity. And I know that's hard for your listeners to think of people that way, but that's exactly how, when you're sitting across from these people and you're debriefing them, that's exactly how they talk about them as a commodity, how much to charge based on what a female looks like, and based on what country they come from is, is basically what the cartel decides as to how much they charge for them to travel through their plaza. At first, they were pretty upset because if you remember, that's when the president sent down the military. Uh, now they've evolved. They figured out how to make it work, and they are. And so now to them, it's just another money-making entity. And for those who then they're being forced to join the cartels. So now they're getting... Uh, as they're warring in certain areas like Tamaulipas, Reynosa, Nuevo Laredo right, right now, as we've seen, and we've seen a further migration due to the violence of Little West, the cartels are have figured out how to replenish their losses by having these people come to work for them so, and by exploiting them. So now it's become a win-win, and it goes back to what you've always heard me talk about. The cartels evolve very rapidly and very quickly. And when you talk about this, this, um, this machinery moving people through, we call that the underground Uber. And you, and you know, I, I know your, uh, your listeners have seen it where you see the 18 wheelers just full of people moving folks north or the cars and the trucks. That's what that is. That's the underground Uber that is taking the piso or the tax for the cartel and moving people just like a commodity and a product through a plaza and moving it north. And then what these cartels do is areas where they don't control, they build relationships to make sure people get through. I mean, it's it, it's just the way they operate. So what 
what is there to do from a Texas standpoint? Let, let's just say from a state standpoint. The reality is um, this is probably the first time in the history of the world, it really might be, where a strong nation with all the resources it has is just totally okay with an invasion. Yeah, yeah we're, we're not doing anything. And that message has clearly gone out. Clearly, the cartels get what's going on. The migrants get what's going on. The NGOs forming these caravans and weaponizing them get what's going on. The bottom has fallen out from under our sovereignty. Um, this could, I mean, there, it's an unlimited number of people that could come and, you know, it, it could go to Nicaragua, it could be Venezuelans. I mean, when we empty out Central America, are you hearing any grumblings politically or from law enforcement in Texas itself to at least sure, in I, Texas I, do stuff? What, 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 what are they planning on doing? Yeah, I, I won't give away operationally what they're planning on doing, but I can tell you um, exactly what their motto is and what they are going to do. And that is that you are not coming to Texas and do not expect that you're going to make it without being apprehended. And we don't care but where you go. they want to be go, apprehended. But, yeah, but hang on a second. Listen, hear, hear me out on this. Or we don't care where you go, but you're not coming here and you're not going to make it through. So what that means is that they're going to take the path of least resistance. And they're going to go to places like New Mexico, where there is hardly any enforcement effort occurring because it's just the easier path. And I understand what you're saying about uh, OTMs uh, other than Mexicans and asylum seekers, those who come from a country where they can claim that or they can claim uh, credible fear. You're absolutely right. They're going to cross in, in large numbers. But remember, uh, that's what they are allowed to do. That's the legal immigration process right now, which you know we may not like, but those people are at least going to be picked up. It's all the other criminal involvement that goes with that in the movement of narcotics and the movement of people that are going to try to get around and skirt law enforcement. You're not going to do that in Texas. I can tell you that that is the view of the director of DPS. I've sat in rooms with him on that. And when they have intelligence, which I know they have a great intelligence apparatus, that um, uh, large groups of people are going to try to come through. They're going to send down large groups of law enforcement officers from all over the state to collaborate with the United States Customs and Border Protection. Now, that's not good if you're in New Mexico, if you're in Arizona, and if you're in California, but that's Texas's view on it. And it may seem harsh, but it is the view, and Texas is going to protect Texans. I, I, I can assure you that as someone who spent a lot of time uh, with executive leadership in Texas and have watched as Texas spent more than $2.2 billion to ensure that they're doing everything they can to protect this state. So I remember they did that in the past, but again, not to kind of challenge you here because there's nothing you can do about this point, as you mentioned, but the, the the Central Americans and the bogus asylum, that is the whole enchilada here. I mean, that is almost all of them. And when they're coming in, in, in sheer numbers, that ties down their resources. So, I mean, are you suggesting that, well, Border Patrol will deal with the, um, you know, be, being nannies for Central America, but Texas DPS will then you know, go to other places to prevent the cartels from exploiting that? No, what I'm saying is that they will work it together in a collaborative environment using intelligence to drive operations, putting boats on the water, helicopters in the air. And I mean, 24-7, 365 operations is what they will do. And hundreds in, in a week, it is not uncommon for Texas DPS to send over 150 Texas highwaymen, highway patrolmen, Criminal Investigations Division officers, um, aircraft, uh, and Texas Rangers to that border in, to collaborate and work in conjunction with local, state, other state agencies. You know, we've also got Texas game wardens down here that play a key role in that. So it is truly a collaborative environment. And they will literally go down, Dan, and hold that line where one highway patrolman can see another highway patrolman who can see a Border Patrol officer who can, I mean, and we just hold the line. And then we put helicopters in the air and where CBP is not operating, we will fill that void. And that's how you do it. That's collaboration in the 21st century to not in, conduct investigations, but to truly prevent crime from entering the United States. And, you know, you talk about, well, what are the successes of that? You know, what are you getting out of that? I can tell you during Operation Secure Texas, we saw our local index crimes, which are your burglaries, your robberies, your you know your stolen vehicles and your thefts. We saw those drop by over 26% in RGV Valley. So 
these things work. We know that they work. And where they have intelligence, where these folks are coming, they will be there to hold the line. Yeah, I mean, I hope so. It's just that the problem now is that for a while, you're right, they were going to New Mexico. New Mexico has nothing. I mean, New Mexico DPS, there's just nothing there. Um, the other states, very, very sparse. Uh, but but the last couple of weeks, I mean, Texas is getting slammed. It's all Texas now. It's it's both at the east end, uh, RGV, and the west end at at uh, El Paso. Mm-hmm. So that sure, really, and, and, yeah. And you're going to see, you'll continue to see on the west end that increase. And a lot of that that we're hearing is coming from the debris. You know, the violence in Tamaulipa, specifically Reynosa and Matamoros from the, the Gulf Cartel fighting both within itself between factions and then the Cartel of the North, uh, we call it CDN, which is the old school Zetas or old Zs. Um, they are also in battle with the government and against the Gulf Cartel. So that violence that occurs in Tamaulipas will continue to drive a lot of those, those folks coming from Central and South America further west. But the path of uh, the quickest path to the U.S. border uh, using the infrastructure in Mexico is still the Rio Grande Valley. So many of those people that you're talking about in apprehensions, they're not crossing between ports. Many of them are walking right across a port of entry trying to claim asylum. Or if they do go between the port of entry, they're walking straight to a border or to a border patrol agent. And, you know, requesting asylum or claiming they have credible fear. So they are captured. But at least at that point, everything else that follows through that doesn't get through. And let me give your listeners an example, because where you hear about 300 people that just crossed in, let's say, one location, Mm -hmm. what you don't hear is the back-end operational control that the cartels have of that. And that's what I'm really focused on. So they'll send these people directly to Border Patrol because they paid the piece or they paid the tax. They're moving between the port of entry. Now they're going to send them directly to Border Patrol, but these people have no idea that's where they're going. They think they're just getting ready to get through. Even though they can claim asylum, they, they don't realize that they're, going, that they're going to be used as pawns by the cartel because people are the gift they keep giving in many cases because once they return, the cartel just collects the piso again and they're pushed right through. So they're going to push them right to Border Patrol and upriver and downriver, guess what the cartel is going to do? They're going to move their weapons south from the United States into Mexico and their money, and then they're going to move drugs north. So they're being these people, even though they're coming here under a legal status, right, to claim asylum and all these other things, they are still being used as a pawn so that the cartel can conduct their operations on the border. And for me, that's where I get really frustrated, because that is the untold story of how the cartels not only exploit people, but exploit our southern border. They truly have operational control, and they send these people where they want them on purpose. So when you see, you know, like young kids in a bus getting out of a vehicle on the Mexico side and crossing, um, that plays no role in the operational side of what the cartels really do. That's just the leftover of people who've already paid the peso and the tax. Yeah, yeah, send them over here. Just let's see if they make it through. That's the leftovers. When I talk about true operational um, control of that Southwest border, let me give you some examples. When you see, like in California recently, you remember they were um, they were causing a lot of problems, throwing bottles at Border Patrol, storming the, the fence. Do you remember that here last month? Yep. Um, and what they had to, that is, yeah, they that, throw some gas cannons or whatever it was. Absolutely. Look, they're not doing that without approval from the cartels. And in many, many cases instigated by the cartels, because the bigger the distraction that your audience sees along that border, all that should tell you is that most likely the larger boss has some product he needs to move. So they'll cause the larger distraction. We see that numerous occasions along the Southwest border. So, That's why I say never think for a second that when you see large groups of people crossing into our country illegally, that the cartel is not behind that and in some way, shape or form involved because they are. And exactly. And if if we actually treat them like terrorists because terrorism is a tactic and they use terrorism to achieve their ends, um, at least, you know, while we sit and debate whether we're a sovereign nation and all the other stuff that the legal political people like me do at least, you know, on the law enforcement side, 
we could at least counter what's very much the source of the problem because you know these people don't come on their own. It, the conveyor belt is completely run by these entities. Um, what do you say to those that are like, well, no, they're not terrorist organizations. They're criminal organizations. It's not terrorism. That's not a, they just want to make some money. They're just there for greed. They're greedy. They're bad people, but that's not the technical definition of terrorism. And let's not taint our counterterrorism with this. Dan, I got to tell you uh, right now, my blood pressure goes up because uh, <laughs> when you, when, 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 and I know that's why you said that to me. Uh, I've been hearing that for well over a decade now. I have worked this cartel issue um, for so long, you know, I, I was stationed on the border in El Paso in the late nineties. I was an undercover narcotics agent in Brownsville as this group called the Zetas who were, you know, former special forces guys were just slaughtering people. And then, you know, when the war broke out in 2009, I was a Lieutenant in uh, Laredo, Texas. And I've, I've worked these cartels and I have watched as they have evolved and listened to one supposed expert to the next as these guys just started killing people, not all over Mexico, but all over the world. And then the level of tradecraft that they've employed, you know, if you look at the murder that they conducted in Dallas, Texas, against a uh, Gulf cartel attorney at the mall, and the level of tradecraft that they employed on that was, it was really something, and it was an eye-opening experience. Uh, they, they literally tracked him for several states by putting trackers on his vehicle before putting him down and killing him in a public setting in a mall uh, while he was getting out of a vehicle. And they tracked him for weeks and weeks. It, it, the, I have to tell you, you know, when that event happened and then go to 2015, when they, they did one of the first decapitations uh, in South Texas, you know, every time I hear this thing of, yeah, but Jason, they won't ever do this. Yeah, but Jason, they won't ever do that. I mean, What's enough for these people to change your mind to recognize that the cartels are no longer drug trafficking organizations? That is something they do, but they are involved in everything. They are moving military grade weapons. We have seen them seize, uh, or we have seized from them surface to air missiles. We have seen them shoot Mexican military helicopters out of the air. We have seen them challenge uh, the government of Mexico. We see them murder men, women, and children, including political leaders in Mexico. I mean, look at the number of politicians they killed last year, over 100. This, this thing has changed. And what has not changed is our long-term outdated perception of them. And that's what needs to happen now. And isn't it true that it will also you know, pave the way politically to have more of a robust military presence on our border, you know, if we, if we treat them as such. As terrorists? Uh, I think it could sure open some doorways there, but what it will mostly do, Dan, is allow our military uh, to play a much bigger role in uh, counter-terrorism uh, operations all over the world, to be able to drive intelligence, not, not here and there like we do now, but I mean 24-7, 365, our DOD working directly with their military, helping making them successful. What you see mostly now that is not very uh, public, or I guess I should say not talked about a lot, is that DEA is providing intelligence to Samar, which is basically, you know, their, their most elite special forces units down there uh, who do some incredible work, don't get me wrong. But you're talking about an investigative agency providing intel here and there to go after these uh, cartel bosses. What we need are like what we see in Syria, uh, where we have our Department of Defense and our intelligence community providing real-time intelligence 24-7, 365. That's where we need to be and not being so selective about it. Um, I have worked that part of this extensively. I know what our government does and doesn't do. And while I won't talk about it publicly, what I will say is that we are not doing near enough. I have set across during my career Mexican generals and watch as they beg for intelligence to help drive their operations. And while there is corruption in Mexico, that is true. It is massive. It, it can't be understated. Uh, there are still incredible, incredible people risking not only their lives, but their families to protect their fellow citizens. And uh, I've had the opportunity in my career to work with them. And we need to do everything that we can to provide them the intelligence they need to go get these people. And what this you know, what this designation will really do 
is it will allow those relationships to foster uh, much better and for these operations to increase triple fold to help Mexico be successful. And then not just Mexico. Remember, you know, when we talk about the cartels are all over the world. So, you know, we're going to be working with governments all over the world to deter them uh, and other criminal networks as they evolve. You, you know, you, you you implanted an interesting idea or just, just a thought process in my mind that a lot of this is really not just for the attitude of our body politic, but the attitude of other governments. And, you know, starting with the Mexican government, you're saying that, look, there's a lot of corruption, but part of why there's a lot of corruption is because there's a lot of violence. And, you know, you, you're going to be attracted to the strongest player on the ground, and we're not the strongest player. Nobody right now would take us seriously in any way and think, you know, Look, if I stand against the cartels, I'm standing with Americans. Americans are gonna they, they're against the cartels. No, I mean, and for good reason. They know we don't give a damn about migration. We don't give a darn about drugs. We really don't. Um, we're not taking it seriously. But if we actually designated them as terrorists, wouldn't that be a self fulfilling prophecy in a positive way with some of the corruption that a lot of them will be like, hey, you know, they're serious. They're in this for the long haul. I'll work with them rather than with the cartels. Uh, at least at a political level in Mexico. You know, that's possible. You know, I, I really can't speak to that. What I can speak to is that the cartels have become so powerful. They do not fear us. They do not fear the U.S. government. And even by gaining this designation, if we think for a second that they're going to say, oh, no, we're going to stop what we're doing or oh, we'll, we'll slow it down. Uh, it won't affect them a bit. They will keep operating. What they will do is probably over the course of time start to try to rebrand as we've seen them do. So an example of that and why the designation is so important is let's say if you designate Cartel Jalisco New Generation um, as a terrorist organization, what they may do is rebrand to another cartel name. Well, then now we may have to start all over again because the authorities that were granted only name the CJNG are allowed to be designated as a terrorist organization. And I'm just talking hypothetical here, but I'm giving an example as to how we have to be very flexible to allow uh, these government agencies to have these authorities and to make sure that what we do put into writing uh, does, as these cartels evolve and these networks evolve, which is exactly what they do, that the authorities stay in place because uh, this thing isn't going to get better. It's going to get worse. And you've heard me say it for some time now, and Dan, everything I've said has come to fruition. Look at the numbers. I mean, we're on we're on a projection right now to have 1.1 to 1.2 million people uh, in this country by the end of the year. But where I what what I look at with that is think of the amount of money at six thousand dollars a person the cartels are going to be able to make, and then think about the trade craft and the equipment that they're going to be able to buy to use against the Mexican government wow. and Mexican military and monitor See, our that's where, assets. Yeah, and I, don't, I won't even go there. Let me tell you, it gets pretty scary when you start to look at um, the the trade craft that they're employing to monitor what we're doing against them. So we, we've got to we've got to take action against this, and and because for me, this we will never be uh, successful until we decapitate that trade craft and that capability, so that. Mexico can go after them with their investigative model so that we can also go after them through investigations because right now they've become too big and too powerful. Look, I know you can't speak too much to the surveillance and what they have to counter and monitor our law enforcement, but I just kind of want to end on this point, what you just brought up here. If I had to get in the minds of these technocrats in the government agencies, State Department for sure, but even the the executives in the federal law enforcement agencies, the politicians, the thought process goes something like this. I mean, not publicly that they're, they're going to articulate it, but this is what they're thinking. Illegal immigration, ho-hum. Big business wants it. Um, drugs, eh, never going to stop drugs. It, I'm not taking any drugs, so I don't care. Um, all these guys want is money from the drugs and human trafficking. And, and I, again, I, I hate to speak so callously, but I think you know if we're going to call a spade a spade, this is how they think. They don't really care too much, at least on a geopolitical strategic level. You know, some of them maybe you know do feel bad on a human level, but th- that that's how they feel. They don't care. 
at the end of the day, these are just a bunch of whatevers that want greed. They want their money. I don't care. But what am I not correct in being scared in this sense? Now, first of all, we should care about that. But let's just put that aside. If I give someone who is extremely violent uh, a knife that he could have within a couple feet of my neck, and I have a certain thought process that right now there's a reason why he has the knife and he's using it for something else, and there's actually downright a certain amount of deterrent why he wouldn't want to use it on me, but it's there and he's violent and the knife is a couple of feet from me. I, I look at the billions of dollars they have in the infrastructure, watching our National Guard, um, having the, as you say, the Hakones on the hilltops, not just on their side, but on our side of the soil. I don't see how that's not eventually going to be not a problem until it is a problem where they're going to go after us in a more robust way than just drugs and, and trafficking. Yeah, absolutely. They are. And, you know, my fear is the big event, right? What is it going to be? Is it going to be where they kill some of our politicians? Is it going to be where they accidentally um, shoot down one of our airliners as it flies over with a surface air missile? Whatever that is, this is the whole point to try to prevent those things from occurring. We don't want to be, you know, like many agency members were in the CIA on September 10th, 2001, screaming at their bosses, do something. We've got to prevent this next big thing that's going to hit us. And that's what all of this is about. Anyone that's in the government agencies, and I can speak for many of them that I've worked with across the board, they know what's happening, Dan. They are screaming. And the problem is their leadership is not hearing them and, and, you know, moving the ship in the direction it needs to go. And right now it's about leadership. And I'll just close on this to those leaders in local state, federal DOD and the intelligence community, the world has changed. I'm sorry it changed, but it did. And you have to adjust to it. So stop listening to this program, get out there and start leading your people because it's time. Well, anyway, thanks so much, Jason, for joining us. As always, we're about out of time. Um, we're certainly going to have you back as this uh, spirals out of control. I would hope th- that it gets better, but it's not always riveting, always informative, always sobering. Take care of yourself, Jason. All right. Hey, thanks for having me, Dan. Take care. Good talking to you. You know, there was an idea of mine at some point to put together people like Jason, retired law enforcement. Uh, people that have dealt with issues from a national security standpoint, but a national federal perspective, and just get them to put do reports, media, press. You know, rather than spending a million dollars, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to create think tanks, just I mean, do it, do it in your spare time. Get people together that are like minded. Some of the guys that we have on the show and. Uh, try to again do media and 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 just get the truth out there. Stop short of violating any law on classified information, but anything short of that, just swing for the fences and and show what government's doing wrong, what they could be doing. We need their voice because I'll tell you, it's not going to come from the political people, from my colleagues in conservative media, because just they don't care about policy. It's eerie. They they don't care about what's going on about with the border. I mean, how many people are even talking about it? I don't get, nothing matters. And ironically, it's all coming from the courts, which are also shutting down everything else. The Washington Post has an article out today. Look, you know, sometimes they do good work. They might not mean the same outcome as I do, but it's good work. 63 examples of the court's shutting down a Trump policy. How many of those are still successful? I haven't gone through it all. I have my own list of about 2025, so I'd like to see what they have. It's subscription only, so I have to kind of get in there. Um, I've maxed out on my, what is it, three free ones per, per month. But I'll tell you that you see even with the transgender and the military one. It's unbelievable. It all gets back to that. So today we're just discussing, you know, at least designating the cartels as a terrorist threat, using the military to counter them, at least on our side of the border. I mean, look, it wouldn't surprise me if a court would issue a ruling on that too. But, you know, again, try something. 
at least let's deal with that part. One other thing before we close today, and I'm going to be out tomorrow. We'll be back Friday. Um, I have a lot of good articles up. I'm going to link to in show notes. But I wanted to leave you with this thought. You know, one of the things I was thinking about when I was talking to Jason about what Texas could do, and obviously, you know, he was just talking about from, you know, the cartel standpoint, because, you know, what are you going to say? Well, legally, if the federal government is saying the migrants could come here, then there's nothing Texas could do. And I was thinking to myself, yeah, yeah, of course. The feds say that they have the right to migrate. A state can't stop them. And then the thought crossed my mind. I was thinking, you know what's interesting? Why is it that you have California and all these other states? They could violate the federal government, federal immigration laws when it comes to bringing in people that the feds say can't be here and violate the sovereignty of the whole of the union. But yet, when the feds agree to bring in people that endanger us, somehow a state can't protect its own sovereignty. And I will tell you, not only obviously is it wrong for a state to violate national sovereignty when the feds say they can't come in, but I will tell you, when it's the other way around, it's not so simple. When you have an organized and concerted mass migration completely orchestrated by these smuggling cartel groups, often with the help of the Mexican government. That is an invasion. Texas DPS, in their own report, they say MS-13, whose members are known for highly violent crime, such as brutal murders and dismemberments, emerged as a top-tier threat in Texas right around the time of the UACs. That, quote, the increase of illegal gang members crossing the border into Texas among unaccompanied minors the previous year positioned the gang as one of the state's most significant gang threats. At what point is this not an invasion? Is it worse than an invasion? Well, Daniel, so what if it's an invasion? Isn't it the federal government's responsibility to stop it? Well, yeah, I mean, that ship has already sailed, and we've talked about that before. But you know what? I got news for you. If the federal government is not willing to protect a border state from an invasion, I fully believe constitutionally that a state has the right to defend itself. Article 1, Section 10, Clause 3. It's called the Compact Clause. No state shall, without the consent of Congress, lay any duty of tonnage, keep troops or ships of war in time of peace, enter into any agreement or compact with another state or with a foreign power or engage in war. Right? That's exactly why we adopted the Constitution from the Articles of Confederation where states were pretty much their own autonomous things. We, We wanted a federal government to do things like interstate commerce and tariffs and raising militaries and engaging in war. But there's... A second, there's a final uh, uh, phrase of that clause. So again, no state shall yada, 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 or engage in war unless actually invaded or in such imminent danger as will not admit of delay, meaning where they can't wait around for the federal government. Obviously, all things equal, states shouldn't engage in warfare. But in this case, all things are not equal. Now, again, when you look at the Texas DPS numbers, just over the course of seven years, just from the aliens that were caught by DHS, where DHS had fingerprints on them, that's that's less than half of them. So the crime is exponentially higher, but 1,351 homicides, 7,156 sexual assaults. 79,000 assaults, 18,685 burglaries, 79,900 drug charges, 4,292 robberies, 44,882 thefts. Man, when our founders thought of an invasion, 
They weren't thinking of that. Not, nothing that severe. I'm not suggesting that the governor of Texas direct the Texas Air National Guard to drop bombs on the cartels, although that would be nice. But the state would be well within its right to start returning some of the migrants across the border. You cannot come. You cannot come here. You know, when you look at some of the commentators on the compact clause, the big one, Joseph Story, he explains that while obviously the prohibition on states making war is certainly wise and necessary, you don't want states unilaterally doing that, Quote, it was wisely guarded by exceptions sufficient for the safety of the states and not justly open to the objection of being dangerous to the union. Still, a state may, may be so, situ- so situated that it may become indispensable to possess military forces to resist an expected invasion or insurrection. The danger may be too imminent for delay, and under such circumstances, a state will have a right to raise troops for its own safety, even without the consent of Congress. Why is it that everything we want to do, even when it's blatant in the Constitution and our early commentators, no, 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 that's crazy, that's unconstitutional, and everything foreign invaders want to do is constitutional? You know, if you look at the original language, of Article 4's guarantee clause, right? When the federal government has to guarantee protection from an invasion, Madison originally drafted the language to be read as protected against foreign violence. So it's clear that this was not necessarily referring to formal formal warfare between two nation states, but repelling what I think that meant was repelling violent incursions from Indian tribes. That's really what you know they were thinking about in those days. You know, violent incursions from cartels and gangs and all these people. I just don't understand it. You know who agrees with me? Read Scalia's opinion in Arizona v. US when Arizona was merely, you know, complementing federal immigration law and they um the Supreme Court went and screwed with it. Another beauty from John Roberts. Scalia went a step further in that opinion, and he said states could do a lot more. And he said, quote, are the sovereign states at the mercy of the federal executive's refusal to enforce the nation's immigration laws? A good way of answering that question is to ask, would the states conceivably have entered into the union if the Constitution itself contained the court's holding. Folks, that applies to everything here today. And that is the whole enchilada. If Scalia believed that about a state, how much more would he say that to a district judge violating a Supreme Court precedent to restrain the President of the United States defending our Republic. Till Friday, God bless you all. Thanks for listening. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience.